Welcome back to Good Vibes Nation. And when I say I have an amazing guest for you today, guys, that's an understatement. No Doug, so we got a guest. It's Dr. Ravi Iyer, and he brings with him over 40 years experience spanning the worlds of science, medicine, biochemistry, molecular biology, and pharmaceuticals. And the main reason why I reached out to Dr. Ravi is that he and his team found themselves at the front lines of the COVID pandemic, testing, treating patients in the community level in Northern Virginia. Without further ado, I want to welcome Dr. Ravi to the show. Dr. Ravi, how are you? Good morning, and thank you for having me in the show. I'm very excited to have you on the show, sir. You and I talked a little bit before we started recording. As you know, what I like to do with our listeners is we love starting our shows off with our guests, giving us a little bit about their background and their upbringing and their childhood. Can you fill us in a little bit on that, sir? Where are you from? I was born in uh, Mumbai. It used to be known as Bombay, but nowadays it's called Mumbai. It's uh, uh, in India. Yeah. And then I was brought up. I was brought up in Jamshedpur, which is a, a town in eastern India, very similar to Pittsburgh. Uh, it's a steel town um, situated in a valley around the hills uh, where they would mine the ore from. So it was an automotive and steel town uh, and uh, the central hub of India's automotive industry. And uh, my father was a, uh, was a quality assurance manager there. He he rose up to a high level there, but uh, and I grew up there. I went to the local uh, school, which was run by a group of nuns from Philadelphia called the Sisters of Mercy. And uh, so I went to this uh, school, uh, finished my high school, went into medical school. From medical school, went and got a uh, switched to doing basic research. Uh, did a got a doctoral degree from uh, the All India Institute in, in New Delhi. And from there, I came to Harvard as a fellow. Wow. As a research fellow at Harvard Medical School and MGH Cancer Center, basically working on the mechanisms of uh, how the body fights infections and how how especially difficult to, to eradicate infections. Yeah. I, I stayed at Harvard uh, all the way till 93 and Harvard sponsored me for my green card because they wanted me to hang around as an assistant professor. And um, fate has its own twists and turns. So I finished that stint there and then went and got into medicine in uh, George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Wow. Uh, finished my residency, finished my residency from there uh, and uh, decided to uh, go straight into regular internal medicine, primary care. And uh, at that time, I wanted to practice medicine in a, in a different way. I didn't want to join yeah. a large group and, and become an assembly line doctor. So yeah. I wanted to customize care. I wanted to go into... Uh, so I started my practice. I just hung up a shingle and started my practice. And that evolved into the IR clinic. That's awesome. And um, yeah, nowadays, you know, like... I, I've done several things. I've yeah. been chairman of the Department of Medicine in the hospital there. I've been a hospice medical director. I'm right now the director of clinical research for a large medical group, in addition to running my practice as a doctor in the higher clinic. But I stayed connected with uh, both uh, clinical medicine as well as clinical research 
So when COVID hit, it was a very easy thing for me to span both worlds because I understood not only the medicine, but I also understood the science yeah. on how to keep my patients and my staff safe from the virus. So we were able to tackle the crisis head on. What a journey that you've had. So you mentioned, obviously, yes. that COVID is going to be the, the meat of this episode. When was co- When was it on your radar? When when did you see, did you see this happening? Was it a shock to you? Talk to us about that a little bit. So I I still remember very distinctly, and I, I actually I, in my book The Reapers Dance I talk about it. I said, on March first I was driving back from Atlanta because uh, what you know other doctors play golf I train police dogs. So, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I, yeah, I've I've been doing that for twenty years. I, I I love German Shepherds, so I I don't raise I don't breed them, but I buy them from a, a from a high quality breeder, and I raise them from eight weeks up to full adult dogs, and I train them, and uh, they are trained to track. Um, you know, they'll follow uh, a four hour old scent across a mile long track. Uh, they are trained to do obedience and they are trained to do protection. That's so, awesome. and I compete. I, mean, I, I compete in in club level uh, events. I compete at championships and so on and so forth. So, um, my my coach he lives in Atlanta. So I was I had gone for the weekend on March first to train there. And I spent Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I was driving driving back from Atlanta, and I had no idea. I pulled off the road. Stopped at a uh, seven, you know, at a gas station. Uh, absolutely no idea that in ten days I will not be able to do any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mingling with crowds. And then uh, on March eighth, uh, there was this memo that came from the head office of my group practice saying that, "Hey guys, I'm going to alert you that uh, things are going to go bad." And the uh, from that point onwards, on March 10th, the pandemic got officially announced. So I sat my my staff down and I said that, listen, everyone is talking about shutting their practice down. Let me tell you this, that by shutting your practice down, there is no way that you're really protecting yourself from getting the disease because you have to still go home. You still have to live in a society. It's all around you. So the only way that you can confront this is to face it head on. So, do you trust me to show you how to deal with this safely? So, this is so this is staff, March of 2020, right? Just to set a timeline. March 20, yeah, March 2020, March 10th, 2020. Okay. So, were you so got, my staff decided? Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Were you guys so at that point? Were you guys seeing anything? Any you know any? cases that were coming in that you were couldn't explain what it was basically did you see covid before that we didn't we saw a few sore throats before that but we didn't know it was covid right or didn't test for it my first covid patient was march 13th uh so march 10th we decided that we were not going to close our doors we were going to leave it open uh, we were going to not uh Taste away sick patients from our doors. We are going to remain fully open. And we, I immediately sat down with my staff, 
showed them what they needed to i had access to uh, high level uh, ppe but but on march 10th itself i went on to amazon i ordered 3m respirators and all of that all of the stuff which in another week from that date would not be available yeah. but because i knew because of of my science background i knew what i needed to get and i got it before it went out of stock wow so i i i ordered all of that and then we also adapted because everyone was paying high end dollars to buy disposable uh, gowns to protect themselves i said hey you guys you don't need disposable gowns what you need is rubber garden shoes that you can disinfect uh doesn't matter if clorox and lysol is not available you have swimming pool detergent is available by concentrated by the gallon so you just buy 2 gallons of swimming pool disinfectant and uh, it's it's concentrate and my 2 gallons that i bought in march uh, 15th of 2020 i still have a 1 gallon bottle of of concentrated swimming pool wow. <laughs> disinfectant in yeah. in my classic so, so people didn't know what to do so they were just jumping and trying to buy lysol but lysol is going to go off the shelf because everyone wants to buy lysol That's you right. need to know so we knew that swimming pool disinfectant is just as good as lysol so we we, we used swimming pool disinfectant to to uh, to spray our clothes and stuff like that uh high end ppe was out of available but everyone had lots of uh wind cheaters and uh, snow gear yeah so snow pants uh, th- non insulated snow pants are the same as ppe you just have to pull them over your gear and you can spray each other with disinfectant and you're clean wow. and then at the end of the day just throw the throw the stuff into the washing so the one of the things i said about the pandemic was the pandemic made very very clean very clear divisions between people with resources and people without resources yeah. people with knowledge and people who didn't have knowledge people who panicked and people who kept their head yeah. and those people who had the resources the knowledge and the ability to remain calm actually thrived and did well those who didn't were thrashing around like rats in a trap that's true and uh, this was the fundamental problem during the pandemic and the real failure of administration was that the people the leaders of the world not just the us all over the world they needed to have stepped forward and given a guiding been a guiding light for the the desperate masses right but instead of that everyone defaulted on that on that fundamental duty they all were jumping around trying to position themselves and getting trapped in all kinds of nonsensical conversations when it was all very simple and straightforward that if you did this you could continue to function and continue to do very well during the pandemic that, oh my gosh you're You're going right to what my next question was going to be, right? So you you talked about it a little bit. The world stopped. Not just the US, the world stopped, right? When that pandemic first started, we had a mm-hmm. two weeks, so everybody stayed home, two weeks to stop the spread. In your opinion, was that the right thing to do? 
So the thing that people don't understand about viruses is people needed to have been told how to live and conduct themselves safely with the virus, not hide under a stone. Mm -hmm. So everyone just hunkered down in a cave and uh, did not really acquire the skills to deal with the pandemic. So, you know, uh, there, are, there are four kinds of responses that an animal uses when it is faced with a threat. Mm -hmm. Fight, flight, freeze, or faint. So everyone either froze or fainted. Possums will faint. You know, okay, possum, yep. when it's confronted by a threat, will just fall, play dead. Um, uh, a deer will freeze in the headlight. So everyone froze or fainted when actually what they needed to do was fight it. But did not. But to fight, you need you. If you don't have knowledge, then all you do is trash. You don't fight. Yeah. So, but for knowledge, the people who had knowledge needed to have stepped forward and given knowledge. Instead of that. The people who had knowledge were, were only attending to their own vested interests. Mm -hmm. For example, I, I talk about the masking guidance that people, initially people said no masks are necessary. Then everyone said, oh, everyone wear a mask. And then everyone is beating everyone on saying, hey, if you don't wear a mask, you know, we are going to throw you out of the oh, yeah. yep. building. Yep. We're going to, yeah, all right. We're not going to let you go on the site. But you... People don't realize that the one something that we realized in the office was mask versus face shield. So we, so one of the things about wearing a mask is mask is great, but it, what it does is in a in a healthcare setting, it prevents the patient from seeing your face, news from seeing the patient's face, and the face is how you communicate and reassure somebody. If you can't see that expression, that the communication is always uh, half uh, half baked con communication. Yeah. What what we did in the office was, hey, everyone can wear a face shield. If uh, a mask, a surgical mask, is not as protective, is no more protective than a face shield, because there is it is not really a tight fit. Yeah. So. If you wear a face shield, you are just as protected as a mask, but the face shield is far more comfortable because you can actually communicate with people. You are not really, uh, you, don't, you don't feel the burden of being isolated as much. Yeah. So we all use face shields, and we actually tested COVID-positive patients with face shields. And uh, we, we wore respirators. We wore, we wore face shields. Um, it is this lack of proper guidance and every little talking head on the media would jump in on their 15 minutes of fame and brag about what they knew as if it was fact when actually it was not fact at all they they just were guessing but they would present the guess as established science and that was the fundamental problem uh, in the communication uh, at that time I, I agree. I agree with you. What were you seeing patient-wise, symptom-wise? We've heard, you know, we've heard everything over the media outlets, obviously the use of ventilators, asymptomatic, and everything in between. What were you and your team seeing at that time? So we saw both the sickest as well as the not-so-sick. 
the initial presentation would all, all be the classic, okay, I lost my sense of smell, I lost my sense of taste, my body feels as if a Mac truck hit me, I'm, I'm, I'm coughing, I'm sneezing, my, I, I feel like this is the worst flu. That was a pretty universal presentation. So if I take the percentage like 100 patients, so 100 positive patients, out of that 100, 85% or 85 out of those 100 would present this kind of story, but they would never get sick enough that they have to go to the hospital. They'll be in the house. About 15 out of the 100 will be sick enough that they have to be hospitalized. Mm. Now, out of those 15 who went to the hospital, five of them would be sick enough to end up in the ICU. And out of those five that ended up in the ICU, either two or three will die. So that's your two or 3% mortality. Mm. But the 85 who never got sick enough to go to the hospital, after two weeks, they would clear the virus, but they would still drag on. They would not be back to where they were before COVID mm -hmm. at the end of two weeks. So at the end of two weeks, their, their secretions, if I tested their nose or their mouth, it would still be negative for, for virus, but they would still feel tired and wiped out for a good six to eight weeks. Yeah. And then they would slowly drag in. And some of them would drag on for six months, nine months, and some of them went on for 18 months. That's that long so, COVID that they talk about, right? That's the long COVID. Yeah. yeah, that's the long COVID. But the long COVID in its fullest expression was all the way up to 18 to 24 months. But but it had even milder expressions of that were, were the delayed recovery after clearing the virus in two weeks. So two weeks, they would clear the virus, but they would still have a delayed recovery yeah. of six to eight weeks. So Dr. Ravi, you've been, like we said, your credentials, over 40 years experience in the medical field. In that 40 years, have you seen anything like this? Has there been viruses that, just like you're talking about, like it has you know, knocked them off their feet and then they started to feel better, but they're not 100%. They're not where they were, like you're saying, up to six, eight weeks, months, years after that. This is the worst. Mm. Never, never, never so far like this. Did this is the first time the, uh, the virus, uh, vi that we experience a virus with such long actions. And there are reasons for that, and I, I can go into that. See, one of the things that um, now we, the pandemic is in our rearview mirror, but there are major, major serious questions for society. Yeah. Yeah. To this date, even now, we as a global society, it doesn't matter whether you talk about it as the US or UK or the rest of the world, it doesn't matter. Nowhere is anybody having an honest discussion about why did we have the pandemic? Mm -hmm. How did this start? Why did this have to be this way? So people will say, oh, no, 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 it was not man-made, it was not lab leak. It came out of the Wuhan wet market because they were eating all kinds of yeah, uh, they ate the bat, right? animals. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, I ate a bat, you know, you know, and went batshit crazy. So, you know, <laughs> you can go on saying that. Yeah, but that is it, right? So, but the thing which people don't ask this question is, it really does not matter whether it was a lab leak 
or whether it was the Wuhan wet market, what policies were in place that allowed that to happen? Yeah. All right, if it was the Wuhan wet market, why did you have a policy globally? Why did the Chinese have a policy where their official policy was no sale of wildlife, no consumption of wildlife, no unsanitary stalls, and yet you had a market where there were all kinds of wire cages piled upon each other, and you have one level of wire cages with bats and another level of wild wire cages stacked on top of the bats with raccoon dolls and on top of that some other animal and some other uh, monkey and they're all stacked one upon each other shitting upon each other (laughs) transmitting transmitting whatever microbes or viruses each of them have to each other all right and you're all sitting there uh, harvesting these animals and and chopping them up and eating them so why would you have a policy when your official policy says that those things should not be allowed, so so there was no governance there. Yeah. All right. So let's take that as one aspect of failure. Then, why did you have uh, uh, why why does this world have no official teeth in enforcement cap- capacity? To go into a country and say, hey, guys, you guys are having an unsanitary condition that is going to threaten the health of the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. You simply, we simply cannot let you do that. We are going to put an embargo on you. You have an embargo right now. You have a nuclear embargo on Iran. You shut them down. You, you do a trade embargo. You will do an oil embargo. You'll prevent them from having a viable society if they threaten to make the bomb, which is a weapon of mass destruction. Right. But you have no way of an embargo to prevent a disease of mass destruction from going through an unsanitary uh, practice practiced by a global nation. So that kind of dialogue is not being happening. All yeah. right. Now, leave the Wuhan wet market aside. If it was a lab leak, why did the lab leak happen? Yeah. How did how did the U.S. and I'll tell you, there's plenty of evidence that is going to come out as the lab leak. And the reason for the lab leak was very simple. You have a bunch of scientists, and you have um, and believe me, I have done these kind of experiments before, so I know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Researchers in the U.S. decided to collaborate with researchers in China. They decided to keep this under the radar because they were so caught up about studying the possibility of the pandemic. They they experimented with it. They wanted to create variants that they could then study for making better vaccines. But they collaborated with a lab where they had no oversight, no transparency, and no ability to make sure that the research was going to be done in a safe manner. And in doing so, they opened Pandora's box and unleashed the worst pandemic that created 25 million dead and 2 trillion of damages. Oh, yeah. But then, instead of actually honestly saying that, hey, guys, we need to actually have an informed discussion of how not to do this, 
they swept it under the rug. Oh, yeah. And then zero accountability. When they talk about accountability, all they are talking about is who to blame and who to put in prison. I'm not talking about accountability like that. If we don't understand why this happened, we are going to have this again because this is not the only virus that's out there. Yeah, agree. There there are thousands of such viruses out there. Mm. And it's just one, yeah, it's just one monkey away from the next pandemic. We've seen the movie, right? And this is, Yes, yeah. this is the biggest problem, and I, I, and I, I, I go into this in my book, The Reaper's Dance. I talk about it, and the, this is the issue that we are not having. That, so that's the one thing we we are not willing to have a transparent, open, and honest, and blame and shame free discussion yes. about why this happened. Yes, right. So that's number number two. The next question is. Okay, it happened. Why did we mess up our response so poor badly? How did we stumble so badly in this? Why did that have to happen? Why did the U.S. have to have, as of July 2023, 1.15 million dead? Why did that have to happen? You know, the other day, there there was a little submarine with five people who died. That's right. All right. The tight- Five people went down halfway, halfway to the, uh, not even halfway, one third of the way to the Titanic and, and got crushed to death because their, their submarine collapsed. All right. And the whole world is sitting there talking about these five people. Yeah. <laughs> and this, and 1.15 on that same day that Ocean Gate, that, what is that, Titan, yeah, was the Titan. went yep. down. Mm-hmm. On the same day that the Titan sub went down, 1.15 million people was the official death toll. I couldn't agree with you more. Smoke and mirrors. Yeah. So five people all can identify with five. You know why? Because five people you can visualize in your dining room sitting down and having a cup of coffee or a drink with you. Yep. You can't visualize 1.15 million. No. So somehow that number doesn't seem real to you. It's a big and, number. When we talk billions and trillions and we're talking dollars and stuff like that, nobody has the concept of the, you're exactly right, of what that looks concept. like. I mean, yeah, like, yeah you, you say $2,000 and they'll understand that. Yeah. But it, $2 trillion, they don't understand. No, I agree. All right. So the, 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 the other issue here is, so when it doesn't seem real, it becomes easy for the people in authority to gloss over it. So people who are capable of, of translating that into some appreciable experience are required. And those are the storytellers of society. Those are the podcasters, the authors, the writers, the movie directors, the movie producers. The storytellers have to make this real for us. Agree. Oh my gosh, I agree. I agree a hundred percent. Because there's no other way. There's no other way you can make it real. And that's why you know, in December of 2022, in in Thanksgiving, we were having this conversation, and we were talking about how, why did we have this pandemic? And after that, after the Thanksgiving was over, somehow that conversation kept resonating in me, and it would not let me go. I couldn't sleep because. 
I was the 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 patients who died haunted me. The people who died haunted me, and um, the uh, so one of the things that I was uh, working on was I started looking into how do I write the story, mm-hmm. and I started writing the story in uh, you know, on December tenth. It took me 60 days to write the book. I wrote the whole book in 60 days. It, it was almost, once I started it, uh, I, I couldn't stop. That's awesome. And the, it, it, it was like the words just flowed. It was like, it was automatic. Yeah. So the key here that we as a society have to ask is why did we mess up? Can we circle right. back real quick before you get into that? I want to talk about, before it gets away from me, I want to talk about treatment. Uh, when this was going on, because again, we've heard everything to let it run its course, the monoclonal antibodies, ivermectin. What are your thoughts on that? And how did or didn't you treat this? Or was it a situational based thing, depending on the patient? So ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. The problem with everyone jumping on hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin was these drugs interfere with the way the virus enters the body and the way the virus packages itself. Mm -hmm. But these two drugs, both um, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, do not really work effectively on the virus. So it is extremely, extremely hit or miss. To the extent that depending on these two drugs to really reliably protect everybody is meaningless. The problem is nobody was willing to say that there is a very, 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 very tiny percentage of people who might actually benefit, but even that benefit is very, very iffy. So, Nick, for every lie, there is always a tiny, tiny seed of truth. Mm-hmm. And the tiny seed of truth in hydroxychloroquine is yes it does interfere with the way the virus enters. Ivermectin does interfere with the packaging of the virus in the making of new virus. But it is like uh, putting a Band-Aid. Like, let me explain this. You go and are in a motorcycle accident. You have multiple serious injuries and you have some minor scrapes also on top of the serious injuries. Now, as part of treatment, you, I as a physician will have to take all those wounds and wash and clean them with some saline, dab a little bit of alcohol here and there. Now that in itself does have some curative value. But is that the only one thing that you're going to do to a major motorcycle trauma victim? That is exactly what hydroxychloroquine and uh, ivermectin was. It was a dab of washing a serious war wound with a little bit of alcohol. Wow. But instead of explaining it to the public like that, everyone started demonizing the drug and demonizing the people who were saying something. So immediately what happens is opposition reflux. Yeah. 
oh, you, you know, you must be pulling someone because I do see that little truth and you are telling me that, that that is false, but how can that be false? Because I do know of that one person in that Timbuktu who got better with ivermectin, but unless you explain it like this, it's not going to help. Yeah. So that is, the, that is the problem. There is no treatment until well into December 2020, uh, 2020 towards the beginning of January 2021 was when Paxlovid came out and that was the first meaningful treatment. What was that? And until then, all the, all the treatments was monoclonal antibodies and remdesivir. And one thing that really helped during the acute phase was seriously ill patients, uh, steroids helped, prednisone helped. Big time. Oh, wow. What about the uh, obviously big topic, broad question, vaccine? Talk to us a little bit about that. Are you in favor of it, not in favor of it, boosters, et cetera, long-time side effects? What are your thoughts? The vaccines work, but they are not like all drugs. They are not without their flaws. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about the vaccines. Uh, first of all, all the other stuff that you hear about the vaccines is not true. It, it, they don't change your DNA. They don't make you infertile. They don't make you magnetic. There is no chip in them. Uh, people don't get monitored by that. That's not, that's not how it works. But the vaccines are very, very powerful in their ability to stimulate a response against the virus. But the virus is attacking a, a very, very basic protein in the body called ACE2 inhibitor. That's the receptor on which the virus binds. This receptor is responsible for driving a whole bunch of functions in the body, from blood pressure to heart rate to uh, the way the, the smelling apparatus works, the way brain function works, all of that, the way kidney and gut works, everything has the ACE receptor. So when you attack the virus in a small percentage of people, they develop antibodies that attach to the ACE receptor and cause inappropriate activation of the ACE receptor. So there is a small percentage of people who show long-term effects of the vaccine, very similar to long COVID. Long COVID and long vaccine are the, are the results of the same process, activation, inappropriate activation of the ACE receptor. And th since the ACE receptor is absolutely vital for your body's functioning, the virus, and since the virus goes and binds to that ACE receptor, when you attack the virus, Sometimes you will cause activation of the ACE receptor that persists long after the virus has been eradicated. And that is the reason why the long COVID phenomena continues and the long vaccine phenomena continues. It is not for everyone. Okay. So I was going to say, here I am, you know, I'm a middle-aged man, rather healthy. After your explanation of that, how I'm looking at it is it's almost like 50-50, right? Like I can go ahead and get this this vaccine, and then maybe that'll happen to me, or maybe um, I consider myself a healthy male. Maybe my body fights it off, you know, and I have the same experience whether I get that vaccine or not. What are your thoughts on that? Remember something. Vaccination 
getting the infection is nature's way of vaccinating you. Yeah. So if you get the infection and then you are able to survive the infection, then you you develop some form of immunity to the infection mm -hmm. for future episodes. The problem with COVID, and this is what happens in COVID is, the virus has several escape mechanisms. So what it does is it fools the immune system into making only a partial immune response. And therefore the immunity you get from an infection is not long lasting. I'll give you an example. If you get, if you ever get a smallpox, Nowadays, smallpox is eradicated, but those patients who actually got smallpox and survived and came out of smallpox were lifelong immune to smallpox. All right. So that's an example of a disease that, that a potentially lethal disease that if you get and you're able to survive without dying, you would get immunity for life. Then, Here's another example of a disease that if you vaccinate well in beginning, you become immune, and that is polio. So you take a, a polio uh, va vaccine and you give it to the child, and if they, if they do the full course, they have lifelong immunity to polio. So here's an example of a vaccine that produces long-lasting immunity. Compare that with uh, for example, a disease like uh, pneumonia, bacterial pneumonia, you can get pneumonia today, but 10 years later, you can get pneumonia again. Your immunity to ba bacterial pneumonia is not long lasting. This, uh, take, for example, uh, the seasonal flu. You got a flu shot last year, and this year that flu shot doesn't protect you because the virus has changed. So all these varied mechanisms determine whether a vaccination or exposure to the actual illness produces long-lasting protection. In the case of COVID, the virus itself escapes, has several immune escape mechanisms to prevent your body from getting it. It, it fools the body into making useless antibodies. It, it shows a part of itself that is not that essential, and the body is fooled into making antibodies against a non-essential portion of the virus. And therefore, natural infection does not produce effective protection. The vaccine is, is designed to present a, a part of the virus that normally the virus hides from the body. And the vaccine is designed, is engineered to show that portion of that virus to the body, and therefore the body is stimulated to attack a essential part of the virus, so which is why you have more robust and more longer lasting immunity. So what does the virus do? The virus has a strategy. It makes a different version of itself called a variant. And when the variant has a different, slightly different shape, and therefore, the whatever immunity you had before is not as effective against the variant. So it is this constant arms race between yourself and the virus that you're always doing a little one-upmanship between each other. And you're constantly trying to get ahead of the game. So is that the booster side of it, is what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly? Yeah. The, the, the yep. that's, is... why, that's why the booster shot. 
No, I had I had the primary. I got the I got the uh, Pfizer first, second, uh, third, and the fourth uh, shot. I took uh, and for me, you know, in each of those occasions, I just experienced a little cold and chill on the night of my vaccination and a little feeling down the following day, and then I was okay. My wife got a shot. She, uh, in every one of the shots, she had a slightly rougher and longer duration for about three or four days, and then she was okay. I know of one patient who got the vaccination, never got COVID, and got the long wax syndrome. Mm -hmm. But I also know of 5,000 other patients who who did not experience any of that. Yeah. So it's 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 a percentage, and the percentage is very small compared to the overall risk. So it, it is like so the human mind is always focuses on the negative, right? On a, in a white wall, your eye goes towards the little black dot. Yeah. You don't see the rest of the white wall. So that's the reason why everyone focuses on that negative because. For that one person who gets long wax, it is 100%. So he says, hey, I got long wax. I mean, I'm never going to get a vaccination again. Uh, and and his neighbor says, hey, he got long wax, so I don't want it. So, you know, so, but but that is, that is what I call, um, uh, it is not an effective or a rational response. It yeah. is not grounded in a, in a balanced view of reality. Well, I think it kind of goes back to what you were talking about at the beginning when we started this podcast about how it was being presented or not, or not presented or lack thereof, right? I mean, we, you had a, a, a constant divide. You and your yeah. team talked about the face shield, and the face shield was just as adequate, at, you know, if not better than wearing, you know, a, a mask. But if you weren't wearing a mask, then you were shamed, right? You were thrown out of stores. We're not serving you. You're part of the problem. You know, so I think that goes hand in hand yeah, with, yeah, yeah. with the with the yeah. vaccine. So there needed to have, yeah, exactly. There needed to be somebody out there in authority actually saying that, hey guys, if you have a face shield, you're safe. Mm -hmm. But nobody wanted to say that. That's the problem. No, and it's it's the same thing because then, yeah, of course, like you know, obviously it depends on who you talk to. That oh, it's magnetic, and oh, there's a chip in there, and all that all that stuff, whether you want to believe it or not. But then the other aspect, my thought process is, and and talk to me about this is, was this rushed? Was the vaccine rushed? Like the only thing that the research that I saw on it was is probably the closest thing to what we had was th that SARS vaccine that we tried back in you know beginning of two thousand or two thousand and two. Was that was the vaccine rushed through the system? No, no. I tell you what, the vaccine actually was forty years in the making. There was a lady by the name of Kathleen Carrico. Hungarian lady. 40 years ago, she immigrated to the U.S. and joined um, Rutgers University in New Jersey and did a little bit of postdoctoral fellowship. Even back then, she was working with the concept of how do we make RNA therapeutic? How do we design a technology to create RNA and inject it such that we teach the cell to make its own medicine. So we have a protein, for example, let's say you have a patient with diabetes, they don't make insulin. 
if you were to inject RNA into that person's cell and the RNA is there for insulin, now the cell can use that RNA and make insulin for itself. And I, that is a very, very simplistic way. I mean, in actuality, right. you can't do that, but, but I just will illustrate that as an as a example. So the idea then becomes that, okay, expand that. If you have a protein that is therapeutic, let's say a, 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 a protein that, uh, that can destroy a cancer cell, let's say a growth factor, a growth factor that you can somehow figure out to deliver to all the cancer cells. And it'll, it'll go into that cancer cell and it will shut down the blood supply to the tumor. How do you do that? You make the cancer cell synthesize its own suicide bomb by giving the cancer cell the RNA that will make the cancer cell synthesize this blood supply shutting down growth factor. Now, now suddenly you have an anti-cancer treatment. So, so Kathleen Carico was working on this and she was having failure at a failure not just failure, everyone in her department laughed her out into the street. No one believed her. From her post, and her experiments kept failing. She moved from there to the University of Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, nobody, everyone thought of her. So there was a little bit of sexism going on. There was a little bit of, uh, okay, there's this crazy Hungarian woman scientist who speaks with a funny accent you know, a little bit of uh, parochialism going on. And, you know, so the intelligentsia in the University of Pennsylvania academic circles laugh into their own sleeves at this crazy science science woman. And uh, she fortunately had a couple of people who believed in her and kept encouraging her. And she kept trying and trying and trying until finally, she was managed to synthesize the mRNA, and when she injected it into the mice, the mice died immediately, not, not even die after a few days. Yeah. She would inject it, and five minutes later, the mice would die because the mRNA was extremely allergenic. That it would incite a, a fatal allergic response in the mice. So she was looking at mRNA. Now, mRNA is made up of four nucleotides, and one of the nucleotides is uracil. So it turned out that the uracil was allergic. It provoked a very intense allergy response, and there was no way she could figure out how to get around that. Then one day, just by chance, she came across a paper that talked about a different RNA called tRNA or transfer RNA. mRNA is messenger RNA. And it turned out that tRNA does not have uracil. It has a fake uracil called pseudouracil. And tRNA is not allergic. So she wondered if maybe she could create mRNA, but instead of using uracil, she could use pseudouracil. And she did that, and the mice lived. Voila, she had solved the problem. By, but by then, uh, University of Pennsylvania had refused to give her tenure. So frustrated, at the age of 58, she had come to the U.S. as an 18-year-old. At the age of 58, she left the Penn, University of Pennsylvania, joined a small company called N-Biotech, mm-hmm. and continued to work on this. And 
Two years later, she published a paper where she could inject monkeys with this mRNA that protected them from getting the Zika virus. Remember the Zika virus, the one that, oh, yeah. that infects pregnant women? Yep. Yeah, okay. So two years later, in 2018 or 19, beginning of 2008, end of 2018 or 2019, just before the pandemic, she cracked and she published this paper where monkeys could be immunized with a 50 microgram. Now, you know how much more one micro, one kilogram is a thousand grams. Mm -hmm. One gram is a thousand milligrams. One milligram is a thousand micrograms. So 50 micrograms, 50 micrograms of injection was protective of, to the monkeys from Zika virus. And right after she got that, the pandemic hit. So one thing I, I, in my book, I'm very, very critical of Trump, but there's one thing where I say Trump did wonderfully, and that was uh, Operation Warp Speed. So for all his failings, you know, he went up on, on center stage and said, you know, shine UV light and inject yourself with bleach, and some people in Florida did it and died. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So he did all that moronic stuff, but at the same time, the one thing that he did do well was he unleashed, uh, he set free a mechanism by which Operation Warp Speed could implement Catalin Carico's, and this lady is going to get the Nobel Prize. I can promise you she's going to get it within the next three years. She saved the world. Yeah, you heard it here. So he, he brought Mansef Slui, Mansef Slui, and then he put a general from the military together. So the Mansaf and the general came together and they unleashed all the resources of the United States, academic, pharmaceutical, regulatory, military, industry, every one of them was thrown into the mix. They had only one goal, generate 300 million doses of vaccine that will go into only American arms within eight months. They started work in May of 2020. December 24th, 2020, I got my vaccine. In the history of humanity, never has there ever been a vaccine created in eight months. It takes eight years. Yeah. But the, everyone talks about those eight months, but people don't realize that actually it took 40, 40 years and eight months. So this is what the story of the vaccine needs to be told. So at every stage, the messaging on this pandemic has been completely flawed. Devil's advocate on that point, right? The FDA wouldn't back it. And if you take the vaccine, right or wrong, right? You cannot, if something were to happen, liability doesn't fall with Pfizer or Moderna, correct? What are your That's thoughts right. on that? That's right. That's right. But, but, but you know what? Um, uh, at, at no point can you sue the central go federal government. Mm. Uh, that that law is already there in the books, whether there's vaccine or no vaccine. You can't sue the United States uh, federal government for a public health initiative. Got it. And that is already there. Um, uh, but you are right. Pfizer and Moderna wanted to have some protection. They say so. There is something called the Good Samaritan Law. So the Good Samaritan law 
allows you to step in even with inadequate knowledge and inadequate training and inadequate resources to save a dying person if there is no other instrument and no other tool available. You can't be sued for that. So if I am driving down a country road and I see a lethal accident in my place in front of me, I am not a surgeon, I am not a physician, I have no training whatsoever, but I see somebody with their gut hanging out, torn apart, and I decide to do an intervention to the best of my knowledge and ability for the sole purpose of providing some assistance and succor and possibly saving a person's life, I cannot ever be taken to court for that action. Even if in that process, I might save a man's life and in the process produce some other by bystander effect that may cause him long-term damage. So that Good Samaritan law protects all people based on their intent and the circumstances. I agree with you 100%. I think the only difference here is that major companies, major corporations are involved and and obviously when that happens there's a cost right they weren't they weren't producing this stuff for free there's a cost that that is involved and gets into you know all the, the insurance and and there's a lot of money involved on that so i think oh, yeah. i think oh, that yeah. there's that that would be the only difference but i agree with you 100% i don't think that the intent was to hurt somebody or have, you know, any long-term, you know, side effects, I think, to, you know, kind of go back to the beginning of this podcast when you're like, something has to be done. What are, what are we doing? You know, what are we doing? Whether it's from a person who ate a bat, okay, and you're not supposed to be doing that, what are we going to do there? Or if it came out of a, a lab, right? Again, why are we doing that? We shouldn't be doing that as well. It's here now. What do we do to help the people? With regard to cost, the first 300 million doses that were provided to the U.S. government were provided at a price of, I think, 3 or $4 a, a shot. Once the pandemic was closed as it's over, the shot is now $130 a shot. Mm -hmm. So the Good Samaritan law, it isn't, uh, so they, the corporations will, would argue, and I'm not, I don't have a, a dime in the game. I don't own uh, any Pfizer stock like that that I can say, or you know, it's, I don't get a, make any money out of this. But I'll tell you that as a corporation, they will argue that hey, we still are faithful to the intent and the ethics of the Good Samaritan Law because we are not charging market price. Mm. We gave it to the government at cost, so it was $3 the cost. We, we, we didn't factor in our development cost and all of that. So, I mean, you can go on and on. I yeah, mean, yeah. No, no, no question about it that the pharma industry has deep pockets and uh, go laughing to the bank uh, yeah. a thousand times a day. I do agree, but I think there are bigger issues than focusing on, on whether the pharma company made a killing the fact is yeah. uh, people's lives did get saved no you're you're absolutely but the bigger issue the bigger issue that i would, will always come back to is the game is not over the fight is not over the pandemic has only receded so this is like like a storm that has withdrawn we are in the eye of the storm 
there's a new storm coming and it's going to be the next pandemic and we still are woefully, woefully uh, prepared for the next pandemic. Well, what I want to do here, um, doctor, if you, if you don't mind, I want to be mindful of your time. I want to kind of give you the floor for the next couple of minutes. You know, tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Tell us about obviously your book, The Reaper's Dance, and let our listeners know where they can find you. Obviously, you've got a clinic. We've got listeners all over the country, and especially in Virginia. It's not too far from us here in North Carolina. So kind of wrap up our podcast, again, just to be mindful of your time. Perfect. Okay. I'll take five minutes. Yesterday, my wife and I went and saw the movie Oppenheimer. And I remember I was watching Oppenheimer, and then on the way back, we were driving and, uh, and we were talking. And I said, you know, Oppenheimer, there's a scene where he says to Einstein that when they were studying the ma- mathematics of fission, and they were talking about the chain reaction, and they said, is it possible that we could start a chain reaction that will never stop? that atom after atom will continue to explode until we set fire to the entire atmosphere and we destroy the world in a single explosion. And Einstein said, I don't think so. And Oppenheimer said, the possibility exists even though it is not zero, it is nearly zero that it won't happen. But the fact is it does exist. So in that scene, Oppenheimer tells Einstein that I think we may have just set a fire to the world anyway. By that, he's meaning that they had unleashed the nuclear arms race. What we did with the pandemic is a bunch of scientists in the idea of how to understand how viruses transform from animal viruses to human viruses accidentally perfected a mechanism and understood the mechanism how to do that. And they did that in conjunction with a military industrial complex of a totalitarian state, namely China. And they were aided and abetted by a huge academic pharmaceutical regulatory apparatus, all under the well-intentioned road to hell is paved with good intentions kind of mechanism of trying to understand how to protect humanity, they unleash the worst crisis on humanity. That is the reason for the pandemic. And it is not me saying this, Wall Street Journal is saying it, and they're saying it louder and louder every day. Just do a Google search, lab leak, and you will see paper after paper, not from conspiratorial tabloid newspaper from the Wall Street Journal, Mm -hmm. from authoritative sources. So now you have a situation where we have essentially a dual threat to humanity. One, extreme weather is going to cause agricultural yields to go down. Water is always going to be scarce. Already you are having the worst summers all over the world. As agricultural yields go down, people are going to fight for the protein. They're going to go for alternative protein sources because they can't grow protein. More and more people are going to go in and harvest wildlife. And so your opportunities for natural spillover into humans, future pandemics, continue to rise. Deforestation increases, so human populations will continue to interact with, uh, with wildlife more and more. 
And then you have a military industrial complex, an academic military industrial complex that has now discovered that they can manipulate stuff to become hugely lethal. And there's going to be some general somewhere going to say, you know, how about if we could create a vaccine that we immunize only our soldiers and no one else? You think that's not possible? It takes a lot of technology to create a bomb. You can create the next pandemic in a setup in a basement of no more than breaking bad. Yeah, that's scary. This is the reality of the world. That's scary. You need a couple of ferrets. You need a couple of bats and a lab. That's all you need. Yeah, that's it's definitely scary. Scary to think about. But, Doctor, I appreciate your time. Let them know where they can find you, uh, social media, your website, et cetera. Um, and we're going to have to have you back on this on Link show. Tree. Let's do yeah, it. Linktree. Just go to Linktree, uh, HTTPS, colon, slash, slash, L-I-N-K-T, as in Tom, R as in Robert, dot, E-E, slash, my name, D-R-I-Y-E-R-M-D. Awesome. We'll put it on, uh, our, Linktree, on, our, you can, on our social media yeah, site. It's a pleasure talking to you. I uh, look forward to this podcast. And Absolutely. I hope you guys can you, you can get the Reaper's Dance on audio, uh, Kindle, hard, hardcover, and paperback on Amazon. It's just the Reaper's Dance. Awesome. 1,000 well, Days of COVID. We'll definitely check it out. Thank you so much for, for hopping on our show today. And honestly, we're going to have to have you back on there again. We talked about, we talked about a lot of things and I, and I appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Robin. Thank you. Bye.